language um, is one of my favorite things about being black. The looks on my face, the how I move my body, how I move my hands, how I cut my eyes. I I love being black. I'll be like, I'll be like yeah. yeah. That no one owns the earth. Um, I believe that food, water, shelter, education, healthcare, and other basic needs should be free and accessible to all. <laughs> I believe that Howard University is the real HU that should be acknowledged. <laughs> hey y'all, um, I got an opportunity to sit down with one of my favorite colleagues from undergrad, um, Mary Elizabeth Morrell, um, who is now um, studying to be an attorney, um, who has a past um, um, curriculum background around um, maternal health and child health, um, as well as Africana studies. Um, she brings a lot to the table in talking about bringing um, holistic goodness, wellness, and joy into the work that you do. Um, and I hope you enjoy Mary Elizabeth. darling can you hear me yes i can <laughs> how you doing i'm good happy to be here oh it's good talking to you it's been a while i know i think it's been some years yeah i always gotta look forward to the popular facebook posts that be getting people together so <laughs> i'm here to serve the people <laughs> so how you doing you in, you, you in florida or you dc where you at yeah, so I'm from Florida, um, mm -hmm. and I run our family-owned law firm down in Orlando. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so um, okay. both my parents were lawyers. My dad's passed, but my mom is still alive, and she has her own firm. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm currently in D.C. I've been in D.C. since I started Howard, um, and I'm in law school in D.C. now currently, but I'm okay. back and forth between Orlando and D.C. Okay. Are you at Howard Law? I am not. Um, okay. Okay. I, it's so funny because when I was applying, um, the school I'm at, I'm at UDC. I didn't even know okay. that it existed. Yeah. Um, I had met like three people in one day that told me, you should apply to UDC. <laughs> and... Um, it was, they weren't on my radar. Um, and I fell in love with the school and it was like my number one school, only school I applied to. And then I ended up also applying to Howard Law because I got roped in, you know, the same reason why I went to Howard for undergrad. Um, mm -hmm. And during that process, I remember emailing Howard's financial aid, like, hey, you know, I'm eligible for any scholarships. And they, you know, sent me to they me back and they were like, congratulations. We are so happy to announce that you are eligible for third party scholarships. Oh, man. How so, is ghetto? Okay. <laughs> yeah. So when they said that, I was like, you know, I've already been around this rodeo. And mm -hmm. something I learned and something I've just noticed over the years is a lot of people that go to Howard for grad school did not go to HBCU undergrad mm -hmm. and they are trying to relive 
the experience that we had at 18 years old. And <laughs> I'm not trying to do that. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, some of them, some of, some of them. But I think grad school, if you have a lot more financial independence, I think you could make that move, you know. But for those of us who knew what it was like when we were there, and I was on scholarship, and I still used to be in the financial aid for hours every semester. So it was very, like, I don't know. I remember when I was thinking about applying to grad school and stuff, and Howard is the only uh, HBCU with a PhD program in sociology, but that was one of the things I thought about, too. Like, I can't be struggling in grad school, like, and trying to live in D.C. Like, I just, I can't manage it, you know? And so I definitely get the financial aid piece of it and child. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I think I'm still unpacking and processing my hard experience and yeah. I know it made a really big impact on who I am today, but I'm very grateful to be at UDC for law school because they did give me a uh, pretty impressive scholarship. And the school itself is pretty cheap. So when I started, it was only $5,000 a semester for D.C. Really? residents. Yes. Wow. So how much is it for people who um, live outside of D.C.? So they just started a new program um, for, like, people in the DMV metro area that I think might be, like, 12000 or something. And okay. then out-of-state tuition is a little bit more. But even for people that are out-of-state, it's still so affordable. And then once you're here for a year, you can apply for in-state. So, okay. um, yeah. And UDC is an HBCU too, right? It is, yeah. So UDC has a really interesting history just because yes. it's made of um, other schools that were in the city. Um, Miners Teacher College is one of them. Oh, and yeah, I don't know. It has, it has, it's very love or hate, right? Like some people love it. Some people hate it. And then the law school was Antioch Law School that was started by a wife and husband duo. Um, the wife's name was Jean Camper Khan. Mm-hmm. She's an ancestor now. She's a really um, powerful sister and somebody that people really should know about. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel and- like I've heard um, her, her name in the Africana Studies Department at some point. And I don't know what the context was, but that name definitely does sound familiar to me. Yeah, so she um, revolutionized, like, poor people's access to legal care. And Mm. her and her husband, they utilized the law school here in the district to create social justice-oriented attorneys to provide free and low bono care to D.C. residents. And so, I said, the school's pretty young. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it was started in like I want to say the 80s or something um okay but don't quote me it's a quick google search (laughs) but anyway Antioch Law School and um the University of District of Columbia combined at one point and so now we have um the University of the District of Columbia David A. Clark School of Law (laughs) um and it's a wonderful place like it's uh it is an HBCU so you get all of the um, joys and pains of the HBCU, um, but it's also um, a part of, like, D.C. is through the D.C. government, mm-hmm. and so, like, our budgeting and all of that comes from Congress, which is weird, mm-hmm. um, but that's how D.C. works. That's a, and that's, I think D.C. is just a, 
DC is just a special place in so many ways. Like whether it was being an undergrad and learning how like DC not being a city impacts like so many government processes. It was just right. like, I couldn't make sense of it because I'm from you know what I mean Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is a Commonwealth state, and I was like, well, what do that mean? I remember right. learning all of that stuff and being like, what? <laughs> mm-hmm. But I'm I'm glad that you're there. I think that you know like. DC is a special place, as you said, like, you know, I didn't know that your family, you know, had a law firm and stuff. And I think that's even, you know, more important in thinking about um, you taking up the practice of law. Right. And I guess I want to hear more. Well, first, I think you can introduce yourself, um, give a, a intro. You can tell as little or as much as you like. Okay. Um, so I am Mary Elizabeth Morrell. Um, I am a native Floridian. My mom told me the other day that she wants people to know that I am really a Floridian because my family's from North Florida and that was the original Florida. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was born and raised in Central Florida in Orlando. Mm -hmm. That's where my dad's family was from. Um, And I, whenever I speak of myself, especially I began to publish things, I always try to uplift and honor who my parents are yeah. um, because that's an important role in who I am. So I'm the daughter of the late Harry H. Morrell II and Jane E. Carey. And I went to Howard University for undergrad. Yeah. Um, I went to both public and private schools in Orlando. So I really can't be like, you know, like I'm a proud product of the Orange County public school system because that's not exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm here today. Um, I'm an artist. Um, I have written a play that I have tucked under my bed for the last couple of years. I, I did not know that. Yes, girl. I've been, it's been under there. Um, mm-hmm. I started like picking up um, writing a lot when I was at Howard. Mm-hmm. Um, I got my degree in maternal and child health education, mm-hmm. and my minor was Afro studies. Um, during that time period, I also became a doula, and doulas provide non-medical support to birthing people and their families. Um, so I became a doula. I was 21 years old, which is uh, quite the journey to be on at 21. Um I've been out of practice uh, since my dad died, mm-hmm. um, but being a doula really has molded my lens, uh, my critical lens, and it's played a large role in how I see the world and how I communicate with others, um, especially in being in positions to um, hold space with others that are decision makers. Yeah. Um, in 2016, I was an integral part of President Obama's end of his um, second term. I was the My Brother's Keeper intern in Cabinet Affairs. You were and still then, at Howard at the time, right? No, so by then I had graduated. What year did you graduate? I graduated fall 2015. Oh, wow. I feel, why do I feel like you were there for so much longer that I was there? Like, Because I, I finished in 2018. Because I was around, um, <laughs> I am a part of Ubiquity, which is Howard's oldest Afrocentric organization. And so even after I graduated in 2015, mm-hmm. um, I was still 
around like because I was um I have like mentees that were still at Howard and I was a part of Ubiquity so I was just around I was really around and um I was thinking that the other day because I know I have some pretty like solid relationships with people that are way younger than me and I think (laughs) I met them because they were friends with my mentees oh okay okay yeah because I know that one thing I always remember is like um you know like you always you always gave off this really like grounding energy you know what I mean and you know Mm -hmm. Howard was a lot it's a lot of different people a lot of different energies there but whenever you know we did come into contact in spaces I, I always felt like you were always trying to be conscientious about digging deep like not like the fake deep, like, oh, let me do like spoken word in front of a, a room full of people at a book talk. But mm-hmm. really, like, I remember when I first found out what your major was and I was like, we got that major here. And then, you mm-hmm. know, your rationale for like wanting to choose that major and like what it means to you and like how important it was. I was like, dang, like, you know, we got folks that's in the school of B that's like, yeah, I want to be an accountant. I'm trying to run this bag up. And you got people who are, you know, in other places that have career goals not to say that they are any less valuable but at 18 17 etc like a lot of us were making decisions around like what felt practical or like you know if we were artists what felt artistic but I think that 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 grassroots movement around grounding and community work and orienting even your your undergraduate degree to that I felt like that was a really purposeful and mindful move that I didn't see a lot of other folks making because that was a pretty small program right yeah, um, super tiny. Um, I really have to give a shout out and the most uh, love and praise to Dr. Long White because she was really the backbone of um, that department. And by the time I got to Howard, the School of Arts and Sciences, which is where the department was, um, was really like pushing us out. And um, I don't even know if they have health education at Howard anymore. Um, but yeah, Dr. Long White, when I came into her office, I was like 19 and she looked at me and she just gave me this look of like, I know you can be great, but you don't know. So I'm going to push you. (laughs) And she did. She really pushed me. Um, and so, yeah, I, I appreciate that. And I, I'm happy that that is what you recall of me because that's what I want people to feel. I want people to feel um, grounded and uplifted in the truth and sharing that space with others and even being a doula so young like my oldest sister is a doula she's like I don't want to be throwing her age out there but she's in her 30s and she's you know had her own you know births that have been at home and oddly enough she watched my mom have my little brother which I thought was the weirdest thing like for forever I was like <laughs> I could never watch that like why would you <laughs> right I watched and the reason why I felt like I knew um that what you were moving towards felt so grounded or I felt like it was so grounded was because I watched my sister go through those processes and it changes you, you know, going through the process of becoming a doula. It takes something of yourself in order to show up for people in that way. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, holistic health and like activism and all of those things like also become a huge part of the community, really depending on you to function in such a way to give them not necessarily access, but, advocacy right in spaces and systems that have been historically violent towards us and our people and that's that's a big mantle to take up as you know an undergrad or a young person 
it, it really is like I mean yeah yeah and no in some ways because like that's what we do right that's what black people do that's who we've been but and then also to see you in the legal profession I feel like it's really important too because I'm, I'm sure and I could you know I'm I'm certain that you'll bring that same type of orientation to the work that you're, you're doing moving forward if that makes sense yeah I mean I think ever since I was a little girl my mom will tell you that when I was eating my cereal, I would be watching a birth story <laughs> and like watching live births on television. And she thought it was the weirdest thing. Um, and so, I don't know, something about my spirit has always been that way. Um, but I remember when I was, I think I was at Howard and I had learned about um, a midwife in Orlando named Jenny Joseph, mm-hmm. who is this really dope uh, midwife. And she, the work she's done, um, I think it's called like the JJ way um, and just using her birth practice to uh, empower families and communities. So I remember I had reached out to her and was like, hey, can I talk to you? And she, her, this busy woman made time to talk to me. And after our conversation, you know, she was just like, I think that you should go to law school because there aren't that many people that advocate for birth workers. And so you should go. And so that conversation was really grounding for me and something that I held on to. I wasn't planning on going to law school. I wanted to travel the world and just like be cute and eat mangoes in more places, <laughs> um, which I still want to do. And every day that I'm not doing that, I'm really sad about it. Um, but, you know, I have seen in that she was right like when I'm having conversations when I'm doing work or whatever people really like don't think about the impacts that policies both federal and local have on families and they don't a lot of policymakers are um rich white men or people that are in their positions of power to uphold the needs of corporations and other rich white men. And so, you know, I'm really grateful. Like I said, even now, um, as a law student, I'm a second year and I'm um, currently a part of our immigration clinic. I really take my, um, like I said, my lens as a doula and apply it to everything else in my life. And so as a lawyer, I see myself you know, if I was a doula, I would be assisting a family as they are transitioning into bringing this new life into the world um, or experiencing grief of, of losing that life throughout the process of pregnancy and birth. And it's very similar, you know, working as a student attorney. And I would like to take this into my practice as an attorney of listening to the client's needs um, and just I'm I'm their cheerleader and I am their voice Mm -hmm. Um, and I have to be able to hear exactly what my clients want and um, make sure that that shows up in their documents their legal documents and what's being presented to the judge or the hearing officer or whatever's going on at that time Um, because especially in immigration law uh, our clinic we mostly do asylum uh, asylum applications for asylum seekers so often um, when people are confronted with the law, not just an asylum, it can sometimes be one of the lowest points of your life and it can be incredibly dehumanizing. And so I always try to humanize my clients in that process. Um, Like I said, listen to what they want, 
let them know, you know, it might be this, it might be that, but how can we make sure that at the end of this, that the person can feel whole? Um, And I think that's through, you know, just communication and educating. Um, Because again, this legal system was not made, (laughs) was not made for us to be seen or protected or anything. We really see that right now with what's going on. And I'm wondering too, like, because when I when I think about asylum, and I've been thinking about it a lot more um, recently, and like what it means, uh, particularly because of the research I'm doing. I'm not sure like how much you know, but like I'm doing work in Jamaica right now, and some of the books and the texts I have been reading were around like a lot of like violent experiences and communities and like things like that, and you know people. I mean, it was a lot going on. And then I was teaching a course called uh, Terrorism, Torture, and Violence last semester, and now Urban Inequality. And there's a large um, immigrant population in, like, the Dearborn area in Michigan. Um, and mm-hmm. a lot of those folks are, like, working with, you know, different agencies and stuff like that, trying to get um, legal help around, like, refugee um, like refugee uh, circumstances, asylum circumstances. But could you explain, like, what asylum or yeah what asylum seeking looks like because from what I understand it's like you come to a place like seeking Mm -hmm. refuge but you can never go back to the place that you're from correct correct and so what is the rationale behind that so um one thing that I learned this semester when I started taking um the asylum clinic because I walked in knowing like little to nothing about asylum um, was that the history of asylum in the United States is from the Holocaust. And so essentially what had happened was like, there were some boats coming to the United States of um, Jewish people that were trying to flee. And America was like, oh, you know, we're not gonna let y'all in. So the boats ended up going to different places. And then some people went back to Germany and they were all killed. And so after that, the United States was like, oh my goodness, we should never do that again. Like we have to help people, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And so essentially, you know, that's where um, asylum is coming from. And so through the asylum process, people that are asylum is people seeking protection from the United States because they have suffered a persecution or fear that if they go back to their home country, they will. Um, And that can be based upon race, religion, nationality, their membership in a particular social group or their political opinion. And so what you were saying in regards to the community in Michigan and something that I've um, noticed as well is now um, asylum seeking, especially people that are black, can be very, very, very difficult. Um, Most people only know about like this idea of like Mexican people jumping the wall or whatever. Um, But asylum is a a global issue um, and it's a particular issue for Black people, yeah. um, wherever they are. Mm. And so, yeah, so the asylum process is an individual. Um, they have to fill out a form um, and there's hearings. And essentially, you're trying to prove to United States government that you have experienced a particular mm. harm based upon those things I just listed. Yeah. Or if you were to return home, you will be harmed. Um, and that and that process can be really difficult. Um, one thing that I learned that I didn't know was that um, immigration judges are not 
democratically elected like other judges they are appointed yeah Yeah, they're appointed so um whoever the president is will make a big impact on what immigration judges what they look like um yes i don't know immigration is kind of like this backdoor kind of deal a lot of people don't know much about um and And for me i've been seeing a little bit more um, just off the strength that like my family you know immigrated you know from Jamaica and so I knew that stuff uh-huh. kind of like so when people were talking about DACA recipients and things like that I had a bit of knowledge but like on the technical side I didn't really necessarily have much information but I remember um, recently you know I follow a lot of Jamaican news outlets on social media and it was like all of these folks who had been deported are like going back to Jamaica and they got a quarantine for 14 days before it was just very immigration law <laughs> is a lot. Um, and I remember even being in high school and talking about the concept of statelessness and how that leaves certain children, you know, vulnerable. It was just very like, well, what is the concept of international laws for me was just like, it was very big, but understanding how that informs a lot of, what is happening socially in the world also was just like a, a real shock to me. As I said, like a lot, I had a lot of students who, um, you know, when I was teaching the terrorism, torture and violence class, we talked a lot about 9-11 and like how that impacted, you know, law and like how quickly those mandates came down and how this affects certain populations. It was just very, it was really eye opening. And the other thing I wanted to ask you about too was like, so we understand a little bit about how being a doula um, and your degree in child and maternal um, health helps to shape the way that you practice as a lawyer. But like, what what led you to doing Africana studies as a minor? Even though I know that question is um, very like, <laughs> right? Um, you know, so both of my parents went to HBCUs. Um, my grandparents went to HBCUs. Um, so it wasn't like you know, if I would go to HBCU, it was kind of like, which one? And then when I got to Howard, I remember um, I had, like, some class with uh, Dr. Carr, and, um, you know, like, Dr. Carr is our beloved Afro Studies uh, professor, and after one class, I was like, okay, this is going to be my (laughs) minor. Like, that was it. And then... I remember being in Founders Library and his TA was um, was it Angela at the time? It wasn't Angela. Um, Her name slips my mind. But yeah, we were I'm not going to, her name will come back to me. Um, But yeah, I was in Founders and it was a group of Afro studies majors and minors and they were reading hieroglyphics. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I was like, this is dope. <laughs> this is dope. This is so dope. I had been at Howard for like a couple months. You know, I was a freshman and I was like, wow. So yeah, so it was, it was really those, those moments put together. And then um, I ended up joining Ubiquity my second semester at Howard. Mm-hmm. So by then, I was like, okay, well, everybody else is an Afro Studies major minor, and they look so cool and so well written and read <laughs> that I too would like to be this way. And so that really inspired me because, like, I wanted to rap. I wanted to know, like, what happened in 1964 and then what happened 20 years later. And 
And it did. It allowed me the opportunity. Like I took some really wonderful classes. What were some of your favorites? Um, some of my favorite classes at Howard mm-hmm. and Afro Studies yep. or um I took one class with a professor who's terrible. Now, so I'm not gonna I know say what his class name. you're talking about. Well, I know a professor you're talking about. Oh. Okay, well, <laughs> I took one class that really allowed me to learn a lot about um, West Indians in the United <laughs> States the and, their, and, their, <laughs> and their impacts um, on the world. And like, I share a birthday with Malcolm Ooh. X. And I remember um, in the class, like a part of our final was literally you had to know like so many leaders, their birthday, their name, where they were born, their mom's name, what they did, what they were known for, like all this like really, really detailed information mm-hmm. that by the end of it, like I felt like, and I didn't feel like, and I was like, wow, I was kind of an expert for like three seconds. See, I'm looking um, on my bookshelf now for that book for that class. I think I threw it away, child, because... Man, let me tell you. I made one of my best friends feel like one of my best friends in college. We had met because we did an accounting program in high school at Howard. And I was really trying to figure out, like, I think I want to go to Howard. I was pretty sure at that point that I might not do accounting because I was doing um, some, like, mentoring program with PricewaterhouseCoopers when I was in high school. But they sent us to Chicago, you know, for for the summer to go do something with um no it was Urbana Champagne some biz- it was a business institute for the summer and then I wanted to do Howard's too because I was like well I want to kind of see what both of these things are like so it was the summer before my I think 11th or 12th grade year it was before the 11th grade year and I met one of my friends and she actually ended up sticking with accounting I changed but I remember she was trying to get one of her divisionals and she was like what class should I take and I was like take this class with me because she always, anytime she'd be around my mom, she'd be trying to, like, you know, uh, use the accent and stuff like that, like, in a real funny way. Oh, my goodness. And she was like, yeah, let's go learn about our culture, you know, jokingly. And I was like, all right, cool. We took the class. When I tell you we hated it, hated yeah. it. I mean, I that was one of the classes. I'm not going to say I regretted taking it, but it was one of those classes that I would definitely tell somebody don't take. And I'm not one of those people who tell people don't take classes. And it was precisely because I didn't see, you know, the usefulness of the mode of instruction. Like, that was a lot. Your boy was wild. And Your everybody boy was knew wild, it. But I learned some things. I learned some things that I would have <laughs> never known. Um, and then um, my class, I had a class with Dr. Watkins. Black I don't Women know in America? What the, I think I so. Think class together. She really came yeah, she really came with the receipts in a way that was really empowering for me. Um, I, I learned about Ida B. Wells and Ida yeah, B. Wells was like, I mean, still is like my hero. Um, she really like broke down reconstruction. Mm. Um, Dr. Carr's class did too. Um, that was like really affirming and empowering. And then my last semester at Howard, um, for years, I remember... Um, students always talking about how hard hieroglyphs was so I avoided (laughs) taking it and then my last semester I was like I've got to take it so I took um hieroglyphics one with Dr. Beatty and when I tell you I worked (laughs) baby I worked I worked listen and I I still got my a, a copy of my final for that class 
And when I tell you, I got my stuff too. I got. I mean, so okay. Now that we all um, we're being recorded, um, I think like those of us that took mm-hmm. the class, I think that we should like check in mm-hmm. on each other and and try to keep try to keep yeah. that knowledge because I have my notes and I have my yep. note cards and I have my books. And Dr. Baby teaches the class in a way that you can teach yourself again if you need to, and you can so teach other people. Did, and I would love for us to I keep teaching I think so, too, because it. one thing I did was the summer I started grad school, um, I had volunteered at this, like, um, this um, organization that works with uh, families in Washtenaw County experiencing um, houselessness, homelessness um, and, like, housing insecurity. And they had, like, a summer program for some kids. And I remember I was teaching them one of the, like, very simple hieroglyphic lessons or something, like, very briefly. But then I had them, like, I was explaining to them, like, how, you know how when you write your name in glyphs, it's not, like, a letter-for-letter translation. It's, like, a phonetic thing. And I remember when I was teaching them Mm -hmm. that, and I was like, oh, my gosh, all of these lessons are coming back to me so clearly because he does teach it in a way that allows you to, like, take it step by step but also if you need to go back and clarify things for yourself it makes sense and I remember um talking to Dr. Beatty when I first got to grad school like I want to continue and he was trying to connect me with some folks in Detroit I kind of like fell off the bandwagon when when classes started but I would love for us to definitely stay in community Mm -hmm. and continue with it because what Glyphs taught me so I took intro to Glyphs and then I took Coptic um so like I felt like I gave myself like a sandwich and kind of didn't do all of the in between but the reason why I took Glyphs and Coptic was because I, I did the the Kemet trip. And when we went there, I remember it was like Dr. Beatty and like some of the students who could read Glyphs and they was reading stuff. And I was like, uh, okay, <laughs> I want to read this. And so when I came back, um, mm-hmm. it was amazing to see us like decoding some of the scenes because I remember seeing some of these scenes and he was like, well, do you remember, you know, how this was and that was and this is what these things mean. And I think it also helped me to understand um, the importance of language, um, African language in particular, and how even through the diaspora, like the way that we construct language is so connected. Like one of the biggest lessons was, and he was throwing a lot of the contemporary stuff in there. One of my biggest lessons in the class was, he was like, you know how we say something like he be, or he, he like something about the fact that African languages in general don't need the verb to be pronounced. And so when we were reading the glyphs, right. I was like, dang, like, that's really crazy because the way we talk, we don't always pronounce the the verb. And he was, like, really drawing that out for us. And I was like, wow, like, my mind was blown. Um, and so glyphs was one of those classes I would mm-hmm. never forget. Yeah, the class on B, because when you started <laughs> talking, I thought about that, too, because I felt so empowered. And even now when I speak and when I like, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I be, you know, and you know what I mean. Like, you know what I mean when I say I be or she be or they be like my mama, yeah. she be over there, man. I don't know what she doing, but she be over there. And you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, I, we are such a magical people and our ability to use and stretch and flip mm-hmm. language um, is one of my favorite things about being Black because like, if I say it, I don't even have to, it's like, it's not always what I say. It might be how I say or what I choose not to say is really important mm-hmm. too. Um, the looks <laughs> on my face, the how I move my body, how I move my hands, how I cut my eyes. I I love being black. Yeah, I'd be like, I'd be like yeah. yeah. <laughs> These things are 
people be like, yeah. like yeah. everybody knows what I mean. Yeah. Oh goodness. It's great. Well, I want to ask a few more questions and then I'll give you, you know, some space to ask me anything if you have any questions. So some of the questions I have been asking folks were like, um, we went over some of them already, um, quite naturally, but what do you, what do you believe? Like what's important to you? Um, I believe that <laughs> that's a good one. Um, cause I'm like, I believe so much stuff and then I don't believe anything. And then I'm, I mean, I, I believe that life is a beautiful opportunity to experience mm-hmm. things. Um, I believe that family is important, but we can also choose who our family is and what that looks and feels like. Um, I believe that no one owns the earth. Um, I believe that food, water, shelter, education, healthcare, and other basic needs should be free and accessible to all. (laughs) Um, I believe that people should be able to love who they want to love and feel free and supported in that process and that people should be able to have babies and create their families in the ways that feel um, best for them and that they should be provided with the supports necessary throughout that process Mm -hmm. as well. Um, I believe that music is healing and that movement is healing no matter what someone's um, ability is like just the you're here we're here we're playing music we're moving and we're enjoying Mm -hmm. this time together Um, I believe that the most important ingredient Mm -hmm. in food is love Um, and I believe that the key is to a long healthy relationship no matter what it is is communication respect and trust um and that trust can be really hard to rebuild once it's lost but if people want to do the work it can um i believe that howard university is the very hu that should be acknowledged (laughs) (laughs) um i believe that black people really are something special I, I can't articulate it I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do um minimize it to just like mm-hmm. hashtag black girl magic but there's really something going on here and I feel honored to be having this experience and watching it unfold um I believe that we should enjoy our lives, no matter how short or long they are, and that every life deserves to be honored Mm -hmm. and respected unless someone has said that. (laughs) Well, I'm going to keep it up. I believe that uh, life should be honored and respected and the loss of life should be honored and respected too. But um, I have, I don't really, I don't hold space for white supremacists or white supremacy. So I just want to clarify that in my um, in me saying that because I don't want it to be contorted. Something I've seen a lot um, in law school is how when laws are written and policies are made, um, there's just like this space and this gap in a legal text where things are not said clearly. 
So when it's not clear, bias mm-hmm. can be inserted. So for example, like with freedom of speech, we have um, white supremacist organizations and entities can say and do whatever mm-hmm. they want and their first amendment right is protected. But then if you have uh, black and brown people or people that do not fall within the white supremacist scope, say or do things that could even be life bringing and life giving and life nourishing, they are um, hunted and criminalized by the state. So in my statement, I wanted to clarify that me (laughs) saying that I believe that all life um, is to be honored and observed and um, in the loss of life, that same should be. I just wanted to make sure about exactly how I was saying that should go down. I appreciate that perspective. And then I wanted to ask you, what are some of the lessons that, or tell me the the biggest lesson you're learning um, during the Rona? Wow. Um, Right. Yes. Or relearning. um, Or relearning. Right. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think one thing um, is to listen to my instincts, trust myself. Um, Then, like I said, you know, loved ones, loved ones first. I remember when all this went down, I was in Mexico. Um, My clinic and I, we were in Tijuana. Yeah, I went to Tijuana for spring break. um, So right before all of this went down. Right. So uh, our trips may have looked a little different. Um, I was there to provide legal support to migrants Mm. trapped at the border. Um, a couple years ago, your boy um, started this thing called the Migrant Protection Protocol, which essentially says that people that are trying yeah. to come to the United States through Mexico are stuck yeah. at the border. So I went there. And so when um, all this was going down, you know, like I was in Mexico. I didn't know exactly how quickly things were unfolding here. Um, so I came back and I was like, yo, what's up? Um, and so I've learned like loved ones first, you know what I mean? Because I stayed in DC. Um, I live here with my girlfriend and I pay rent here. So, you know, that's why I was here. But then I also maybe had opportunity to go home or, but I didn't because I was so focused on school. I was so mm-hmm. focused on work and everything and everything ended up being canceled, you know? Um, and so it just made me feel like, wow, like, you know, I, I was putting the work that I do to support my family Mm. before my actual family. And I know a lot of people right now are probably struggling with that too, because it's like, I would like to be there and support my family, but I also make certain choices to be able to support them. Um, And so just grace is something that I'm um, reveling in and then grappling with. Uh, I'm learning to trust myself and, you know, everything mm. at the end of the day gets done. Um, how it gets done, <laughs> I don't know, or, you know, but it gets mm. done. Um, I'm relearning that, life, like I said, life is about joy, you know, and there's an opportunity mm. to experience joy and pain, tears and laughter, but really trying to, like, hold yeah. space for the pain and enjoy the joy as well. I think well. that's so important. 
Okay. And then my last question for you is, what is your work? <laughs> Yikes. <clears throat> um, my work. You know, I, I've really been thinking about this a lot lately because um, in a couple weeks, I'll be 26 years old. And when I talk to people and they find out how young I am, they're always like, what? <laughs> I'm, I'm usually the youngest person in the group that I be in. Um, it's getting to the point where I'm not, which is interesting too. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think, I think my work is to be a student of life and a teacher of love um, because life is something that you I feel like I don't know I don't know if you can really master life I think you can just like keep learning it and keep experiencing it until that time comes when you transition and then you experience death um but I feel like love is something that we also experience and continue to cultivate and unfold and nourish and throw it away and dust it off whatever um but I do hope that in other people being in my presence, that they get to feel and experience love for themselves and strengthen the love that they can experience with others. Um, I am a Black, Southern, mm-hmm. queer woman. And so how I experience love is incredibly abundant and I believe that no matter someone's um, sexual orientation or whatever because that stuff don't even matter but who you are as a human being as a spirit in this body this physical body that one day will be put six feet deep that before that process um, we should be able to experience love um, and love is care shared in community or in relation with someone else love is um knowing that you can show up authentically who you are and be met with warm arms and warm food and jokes and laughter and you know someone to be there with you as you experience the pain of life as well um so yeah i really that's what i want like I want when people to meet me or when people leave me that they feel like they can experience love with themselves and others even even deeper. And I experience, I acknowledge that there are a lot of uh, systemic and societal barriers that prevent people from being able to experience love on deeper levels because things we've been taught or, you know, we ain't got no money, baby. I ain't thinking about love right now. Um, and so, you know, so I said, I think that my work um, as a lawyer and whatever I decide <laughs> to do when I grow up, um, I want it to include people having access mm-hmm. to the things that they need to take care of their bodies physically. So that way they can experience the, they can focus on the spiritual work or the self-work even more. I think that's so important. And I wanted to ask too, so I have a, um, I help to coordinate um, 
basically a, a graduate student workshop that uh, deals with black girlhood. And so like folks who are studying, you know, black women and girls, et cetera. Um, and one of the things that it seeks to do is to interrogate these categories of women and girl and, and see like how useful is that in our analysis or whatever it is that we're studying and trying to do. And so one of my colleagues, one of my friends um, mm-hmm. sent me a book yesterday. Like we do that sometimes. And it's a book. Um, it's called Honey Pot. Have you ever heard of it? Okay, I have. So I haven't read it I'm yet, either, but when you when um, you strung your words together, saying you know I'm a, what did you say? I'm a Southern. What was the order? A black Southern queer woman, right? And I and when I thought when I saw this yes. book, I was like, first of all, I need to read it. But I have all of these books on my um, book list, and I don't think that this is shipping out from the um, seller who the website is womenandchildrenfirst.com. Well, the one that she sent it to me um, through. Um, but this idea around like reading, um, what should I, what should I call it? Like novels in a sense, but literature more generally to get a deeper understanding into like mm-hmm. the experiences of black women at, you know what I mean? Like on different dimensions, I think it's really important. So the sub subtitle for this is, is so it's honeypot black Southern women who love women, um, by E. Patrick Johnson. And the, the cover art is beautiful, like first and foremost, and I love it. But I, and she and she actually was just telling me that like she really loved the text. So I was just wondering if you read it. Or no, and I feel like <laughs> in my circle of queer black women mm-hmm. that that book has come up before. And yeah, since school started, I've just most of my reading I do is just for school. Like I haven't had much mm-hmm. like pleasure reading in Thanks. the last couple of years. <laughs> um so now that you bring this book up and I've heard this book of I've heard this book before, I'm like, okay, like maybe it's time that I read this book as I transition to moving back to Florida next year. Because um, once I graduate, I'll be moving home. And so I would definitely remember this moment. And this is definitely probably be a pivotal moment because I feel like that book will, my, I don't know, might bring me some things. I don't know. I don't know if when I heard heard about the book, they was dragging it or if they was uplifting it. I don't but know. But you can always but just see, your, see um, yourself and see how you feel. And then it's like, all right, okay. Now I got an opinion. Right. You know, right? Yeah. So I don't exactly. know if you have any questions for me or not. <laughs> okay. I do have some questions. Um, I think my first, well, not my first question, but one question I have is um, we haven't got the chance to really speak in some time, and I want to know how we can continue to cultivate community and solidarity, and what can I do for you at this point in time? Dang, that's that's a dope question. Um, Yeah, we haven't spoken in some time, and I think for me, like, it's it's been very refreshing for me. So what I've realized is, particularly with my social media communities, um, I'm much, I'm so much more comfortable and fulfilled when I'm engaging with folks from undergrad. I don't know why, but it's like when y'all be posting and I'll be like commenting or like I'll be posting and y'all be commenting, it actually doesn't feel like as much time elapsed as it did. Um, so I always get, you know, right. I always get a good laugh from your posts or like, you know, even like the the things that call me to think a little bit more deeply about like what life means, right? And what it means to be cultivating joy and meaning and all of those other things. Um, it's really important. I don't know of anything that I need in particular now, but I definitely think to move forward in the direction of at some point, like talking to the folks who have took 
hieroglyphs. Um, maybe Dr. Beatty can, you know, do something since he got all of our information. I think I would definitely like to have some accountability around getting back into glyphs. That would be something that, that would be dope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Um, I think my second question is, <sighs> what do you think um, your work is? I tell people a lot, not a lot. I tell some people this, um, that my work, the way I understand it is equally, not even equally, but it's some parts intellectual, um, and some parts ancestral. Um, and in a lot of ways, I, I feel like my work is going to always be with black girls, um, in the sense to cultivate communities that, advocate for um and that sustain their well-being um and that for me has looked a lot of different ways it has looked like community engagement on the ground it has looked like working with girls who have been um who are going through the process of adjudication it has been with working with you know girls in educational settings and otherwise and now I'm transitioning to this space where um my scholarship is driving um some of the conversation that I'm having around black girlhood and hopefully um moving that needle forward for me means creating um, pathways for their wellness and well-being, right? And for Black girls to be in the forefront of our minds when we're creating policies that harm them disproportionately and the ways in which we're engaging and representing um, them in popular media and discourse. So I don't know. I feel like there's, there's a lot of historical injury that informs why my work is important to me and why it just won't go away and it keeps coming back up. And so my work is to not start that work because Black women, you named some of them earlier, you know, you think about Ida B. Wells and, you know, a host of Black women who have been doing work in this line. So my my thing is to take the best of what has been given to us and continue to move that work forward. Yeah, I I have a sister out in Texas. Are you familiar with someone named Stacey Child? Give me some more context. Stacey Child. Well, she's a teacher and a lawyer out in Houston. She just started this program called Girl Talk, which is hits on a lot of the things that you're yeah, saying. Definitely definitely, definitely. Um, I, I don't think I'm familiar. With, um, I know that there's one scholar who was, I think, a sociologist, and she just did a dissertation on education and girls or something. I'm not sure if she's in Houston, uh, but I know she's in Texas. Yeah. Yeah, Stacey right now is doing some community programming. Um, and it's so beautiful to see her with the girls. Um, but yeah, I yeah, I definitely know that um, that's your work. And I feel it even in meeting you in undergrad. <laughs> and I hear you that being able to see people that we went to school with. And like, I don't know, it's just like one yeah. day like you just weren't <laughs> in school anymore. And then... One day, like, people just started getting married yeah. and having babies, and I'm just like, yeah. what is going That's how on? <laughs> um, but, yeah, but it's like, social media allows us to be there every step of the way. Like, I am a <laughs> proud internet auntie to many of my classmates' babies. Um, and, yeah, I don't know, it's just, it's nice, like, for us to continue to build that support. Like, I remember my parents always speaking so lovingly about their experience at Fisk and going to Howard. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that's what you were talking about. Like, I get it. I get it. I get it. My mom just went to her class reunion and, you know, it's been 
decades since they've all been together. But I mean, it was it was so in it. My mom going to her class reunion um, bought a new life out of her. Like she is your girl is just out here having a good time, enjoying her life and and living again. And I can see that. I can see um, my aunt passed away back in February. And last year, she had the opportunity to go to her class reunion. She was a Bethune. And that brought so much light to her. Um, And so, yeah, it's really important for us to continue to stay in community, stay and support each other. This year is actually the fifth anniversary of me graduating. Um, And only more time will pass. And we'll see what happens um, with homecoming. But I think... For me, that's why homecoming is always such a grounding part of my my year, really, um, is because, and I told myself that since I've been to graduate school, like, I have to go to homecoming every year, and not just because, oh, socially it's fun, but, like, it's amazing to be like, you see people, you know what I mean, you'll be on the yard, or you'll be in that part, in the tailgate parking lot, and people be like, yo, I saw that you was doing this thing and that thing, or you see somebody that you saw get married or something on social media, and you like, oh, come give me a hug. Like, you've been married, blah, blah, blah. Like, it's very, it's like a family reunion. It really is like a big-ass mm-hmm. Black family reunion, and it means a lot because it reminds me, it gives me a marker, right? So, like, it gives me a marker to look back and say, wow, like, these are the things that have informed me coming to the place that I'm in right now, and then looking forward, I know that I carry this community with me, you know, so... I really hope we can go to homecoming this year. We shall see what happens. <laughs> but wow. Yeah. I'm happy you got me on the mic because I have some qualms about homecoming and the yes. over policing of Howard University. Um, I want to really talk about the fact that for the last, I, I can only talk about my Howard experience. And I know that yeah. people that came before me can talk even more. But I can say that since I've been here, um, gentrification has really um, had a a terrible impact on the Howard experience. Um, Howard students experience homelessness at crazy rates, um, you know, and because of that, more likely to be in unhealthy living situations and romantic situations because they're trying to stay somewhere. I mean, like that, when you were talking about being in that financial aid office, the fact that Howard students don't have access to food, water, shelter, clothing is terrible. And then it's like, you know, after we graduate and homecoming is that yeah. thing, like that one thing that we have to hold on to our experience or whatever. Um, the area around Howard is being uh, aggressively gentrified so much so that there are like apartments that cost like two or three thousand dollars where we used to live like meridian is is an apartment now um lucy dick slow hall is an apartment now um across the street from the towers is an apartment now like when i say across the street throw a pebble you hit it um and some our students can afford that some can't Mm. and for those that can't they really can't um and so during homecoming this year this is something i you know other people can chime in but I don't ever remember um, armed yeah. police, like armed, like the little bodysuit, the little, the, um, actually I do remember mm. because we, that year we had that was a fence. 2013, right? Um, we had a fence, I think. Yeah, the year we had the fence, they had like, it was almost like a slot or something. When people tried to jump the fence, I saw the police beat 
people. I saw people get beat by the police. Um, so that was that. But this year, or this last year, 2019, I noticed there was armed police walking throughout the yard. And then um, to get into the tailgate, there was um, like a check-in area where they were checking bags and stuff like that. And then they shut down. The police shut down the um, the tailgate at like 6 o'clock because I got to the tailgate at like 6.15 mm-hmm. and the police were like, nah, you can't come in. And so, yeah, that's something that we really so need think, to be mindful of. I remember um, freshman year, um, and... that was my, child, that's a whole nother story. I was, my head was somewhere else. I didn't go to homecoming. So I left that weekend um, and I remember my friends were telling me about the gate and like how, you know, things were going crazy. But I also think about the complaints from the surrounding gentrifying community about music. Um, yeah, I was when the I, noise I complaints about mm-hmm. the um, Metro PCS store situation like last year when they were trying to tell them to turn their music off I was like are you kidding me mm-hmm. whenever I go to DC I go stand on that corner sometimes just just to feel a vibe like you know it's it's a it for me and they're not bothering nobody I don't understand why you want to build high rises and then tell people no. they can't play their music that makes no sense to me and so I think that this the gentrifying is going beyond like it's, it's hurting black businesses for sure and it is also like trying to really contain the culture mm-hmm. of our university, and that and 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 that is mm-hmm. resulting in a yeah. lot of over policing. Like as you said, I remember being at the tailgate. I mean, it was crazy. You got to get in these lines. It was like going. They might as well have put metal detectors out there too. You know, so I definitely mm-hmm. I've seen that ramp up, and I'm I'm interested to see you know how that changes or doesn't in the years to come. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's a problem. And I worry, like everyone worries and we just be worried. And um, But there's also people I know that are like working together and organizing. And there was um, like a Mochella event and some folks like shut down. I think it was like the 14th Street Corridor. And they had this big concert one day. Um, okay. And there's like a, I think it's like Don't Meet DC. Um there's been a lot of things going on. I don't know because I'd be in school, but from what I think I've seen on the internet, um, I think those were the names of those events are. And people here that are organizing to push back against gentrification of DC because it is really bad. Um, And yeah, I I mean, it hurts, right? Like when you, when these noise ordinances are being used to, Um, essentially like castrate the black community because we like we said earlier right we commune around music and food and family and so if you have these noise ordinances that I assure you the students in Georgetown when they're having their keggers and ragers something tells me that the police are not showing up with the same vigor so these are the things, right? When I was talking about that bias that shows up in our laws, like these are the things we have to pay attention to. Um, and so, yeah, it hurts. It hurts. Um, and when you were talking about the black businesses, you know, some businesses, yeah. businesses, black businesses in DC were already really struggling um, because the property taxes were going up um, and people were just losing land. Like black people have been losing land here in the District of Columbia for years. Um, but now... <laughs> 
that we got Corona Lachey out here. I I don't know. Um, my girlfriend was telling me like there was something that says like seventy five percent of businesses aren't gonna make it. You know, so we're really gonna see again in regards to um, things being disproportionate because even when yeah. we saw I like saw the small business loans to, ran um, out, to, um, something um, tells um, me what is it called? Um, Ben's Chili Bowl. I was reading an article about that this morning. Man, something tells me that um, them black businesses, a lot of them, they was the ones that's not going to get that dollar. So, again, like I said, you know, like really paying attention, <laughs> paying attention to where these dollars are going and how are they getting there and who put them there and who didn't put them there and who's not getting them. And I mean, I'm just something tells me I can just save me a five minute read on, uh, you know, Yahoo News. Um, this going to be black businesses not getting this getting this money so yeah we um wow it's hard out here right now it was already hard and this you know (laughs) this right here Mm. makes it even harder and do you have any more questions for me i don't think so I'm just happy to be here. I'm so I'm happy just happy to like, chat. This was good. We need to like check off, um, check in. I feel like even offline because it's been a while. Like you said, like I would, I would be happy if we had like a little um, get together with some folks from undergrad. You know, just to Zoom or something like that, um, just to get together because it's 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 so meaningful, and I think it's so beautiful to watch everybody's journey. It's been like really amazing to watch your journey. And also to, you know, see you move into this space where you're like, okay, this is where I'm at in this phase of my life, but this is how I'm carrying all that I have always been with me um, and letting that inform how I move forward and, you know, also practice what it is that I'm doing. So that's always a pleasure. And I'm still waiting on a book to drop. (laughs) I was... Yo, yo, yo. So listen, so okay, so that book, that book, everybody wants to know, Mary Elizabeth, when you're writing this book. <laughs> I mean, I would like to know too. Um I I was talking to somebody recently because it was like, you know, since I've been in law school, I just really have not been creating much. Like when I tell you like law school yeah. has rearranged how my brain works, I'm like no cap. <laughs> no cap. Um, because so much of what we do is like, we learn a lot and then we have mostly just like your whole grade is your final. And so it's like this thing that happens in my brain where it's like, Mm -hmm. everything just gets dumped. Like I was playing Venograms last night with my girlfriend and I'm just like, I don't be knowing no words. I'm like, best. I don't know. What do I do with this V and the E and the S and the T? Like my brain is not working. Um, but I had somebody tell me, like, you know, Mary Elizabeth, you're in school, and that's a very transitional period. So I could yeah. see why you're not writing as much. Um, and I feel that. So, yes, I think um, the book will drop whenever I get the opportunity to mm-hmm. um, sit down and, and get my brain back, um, yeah. which will be, you know, after the bar and everything. Um, but it's coming. But what I do have now that I think would be yeah. uh, easier is this play that I'm sitting on. So I that's what y'all should really be asking me about. I ain't gonna play. Greatness, but I definitely I can't wait for it to drop. So please me let too. me know when it does. Sometimes I don't really be on on social media like that. I'll be on there like sparing. 
but definitely please let me know when it does drop um, so I can be one of the first folks to, to give it a read. Yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> you might, you might listen, no, it might be sooner than you think. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, no, the play is done. Okay. So, yeah, something I wrote it and then I put it under my bed. Um, I'm sure, like, I think there's like maybe one or two plot holes that need to be like revisited, but I think I've written all I can write, and I need other people to look at it and then be like, girl, but yeah, I've just it was my first, it was my first play. Um, you know, I wrote a lot when I was in college, like essays and poems about my feelings and stuff. Um, but yeah, this play was my first play. And then after I wrote it, I started to write more plays. Like I really enjoy, um, I enjoy playwriting actually more than books and stuff, just because yeah. I like how interactive the uh, experience is. And um, my girlfriend was actually in a play last year. Um, and I just really saw how she talked about how like being a part of the play was like a a community healing experience and I would like that um, as well so the book is coming the book is coming Um, (laughs) y'all might get a baby first for the book to be honest okay Um, but the book is coming the book is coming you can join me today sis I'm happy to be like I'm happy to be here and yeah, we can definitely, you know, chat like, offline since, you know, we inside or whatever, except um, black people, <laughs> when they say go outside, I bet not hear Nan, Nan Negro went outside. Okay. I would be very upset. I would be very upset. Yeah, we, that's a whole, that's even a whole nother ball game around the, the politics of who gets to decide when outside is open, when it's closed and what that means for the, the whole population like that right there. Trust me, don't get me started because I'll be riled up. <laughs> I'm, I'm well. Yeah. For those of us that can be inside, we need to be inside. Inside, I'm gonna be inside. I mean, because I've been, um, you know, talking to some people and like business owners and companies and stuff. And these these folks, Ooh, they talking about they gonna years. be inside for the next one or two years. years. So that oh, means, yes, okay, yes, yes, yes. And mm-hmm. so I don't think that we need to be on lockdown for that long. But I do think that we need to be um, very mindful and just like limit some of our emotions for a while because like if we don't really know what is going on, yeah. we're experiencing some type of like biological something or other. Um, if you can't see, you know what the problem is. Um, yeah, no. Um, my school, like my internship, everything is online for the summer. Some professors have talked yeah. about they're preparing for their curriculum to be online in the fall. Um, because like we don't know what's going on and we don't have mass testing like until there's mass testing um people should not be allowed outside like that if you don't know if you're a carrier and um you know you're not um not showing any symptoms just people should not be outside and i'm really worried about this because mm-hmm. i remember when information first started coming out it was saying that like black people were less likely to get it and then shortly thereafter, it was like, oh, Black people are dying exponentially. Mm-hmm. And what had happened was, was I think what had happened is that um, Black people weren't getting tested and people were just yeah. sick. You know, we go about our lives and we're sickest, whatever. And then I think people just started, you know, then it started to come out. And so now it's like, okay, now we have the data saying that, you know, yeah. Black people are dying 
you know, disproportionately. And then you're going to open up Atlanta? Oh, no, dog. I ain't going outside, bro. Let me. I'm about to be Mm. at the house because you just told me that this right here is coming for me. And now you're going to tell me to. uh, 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 No, 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 no. This ain't right. This ain't right. This ain't right. Um, You know, for the people who are in. Yeah, just a shout out. For those of us who can stay in, we should stay in for the people who can't, you know. Um. And for people that support can't stay them, in, pay them more, like we have to support lean them on our better, community. You know? Yeah, pay them more. You know, make sure people are you know washing your hands as much yeah. as you can. Like taking off your clothes at the door, put them in a bag. You know, yeah. like letting it air out for two days or washing it if you can. Like these are the things that we can do to be proactive. And that's if you have to go out for work so you can put that food on that table. But I'm talking about like y'all. We can't be out here hanging out. Like we just cannot be like on the block chilling like we want to passing the blunt <laughs> don't think that because you pass the blunt a certain way that mm-hmm. you know what I mean like nah dog, that's not how this work you know what I'm saying so yeah no this is really like scary times because black people were so community we're so communal we're so family oriented that I do I'm so and it's summer coming up and like you know all we want to <laughs> you know like we just all we want to have is a damn cookout that's all we want right now and I understand, <laughs> I understand because I want to go to the cookout too. But you know what I mean? You know, like we'll have to just see what the, see what data comes out and, <laughs> and be mindful that the data they be lying to um, and just be very, 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 uh, you know, take a lot of precautions. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what's to come, but I know from history that if anything is going to go wrong or be wrong or anyone's going to say drop the ball or be a oopsie it's going to be to the detriment of the black community yeah. so that's why we have to yeah. take that's heed important. take that's heed well I'm so glad that we were here today spending some time together we are definitely going to connect offline um, I'm wishing you well you know a lot of goodness and happiness and joy um, same to I'm you. wishing your family well and the same thing and we definitely got a link we definitely got a link Yes, I'm so honored to watch you grow and be a part of your journey. And I see nothing but goodness. You know, I see nothing but goodness coming from your journey and all that you do and the impact that you have. And, you know, like, I say, thank you, love. First of many. All right. You too. I say, peace, 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 be blessed.